0: That of the new hospital built in Wuhan in just 10 days. I wonder if you remember that. Uh, That story came to mind as I was thinking about this chapter. Uh, It shed light on China's ability to just build, 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 push past the red tape. Uh, In today's climate here in the West, many people who are desiring to build their own homes might look on to that story with great envy. The delays and strain in in the Australian building industry uh, has been well documented these past few years Uh, and many people have struggled to build things on time and there's been many stresses involved. It's quite possible that each of us here today know at least one person who has been personally affected by this, struggling to build something or do some sort of project on time and on budget. Come on, get your act together! has been the constant plea of many people in these circumstances, that whoever they deem to be at fault, the builders, the government, whatever it is. And now with so many homes being planned by the government today, it's left many people wondering if things are going to get better any time soon. Well, I say these things because it helps us relate in a tangible way to what's happening in our passage today. In our passage today, we meet a people who also were experiencing their own kind of construction delay, you could say. Here we meet the people of Israel over two and a half thousand years ago, the people who were dragging their feet in the task that was before them, the task to build the temple of, of the Lord. And so here enters God's prophet Haggai onto the scene with God's clear, straightforward No-nonsense command, a command in many ways that is at the very center of our passage today. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord as you and I consider this particular historical moment in the lives of God's people of old, we're going to find that their situation helps also speak into our present-day situation. As you and I head into the new year together, God in his word is going to confront us with some searching questions, testing our priorities and the manner in which you and I live our lives. But amongst the, quite frankly, full-on command here, just to get on with it, there is much grace to be found here as well. As you and I encounter the God in his word who is for rather than against his people. And so with this central command in mind, the first thing what I want to do this morning is consider the background to this command that God issued to his people here. Why did God seem... Uh, think that it was so urgent to be done in the first place? Why did he come out strong through his prophet Haggai with a strong message to his people? What we discover is the dire need as to why this rather firm command was needed in the first place. The people in our text had only recently returned from out of Babylonian exile. God's people, having spurned God's ways, his covenant and his word for many years, had found themselves conquered and carried off into exile, living now in a foreign land. Uh, In the Old Testament, this exile event is really pivotal, and it's a significant event in the Old Testament scriptures. At the time, it threw open the door for Israel to ask many questions. Was God now done with his rebellious people? How was God in this disaster? What caused it? And so forth. The book of Haggai is set in a time immediately after this great and tragic event, or on the tail end of it. Here a small remnant of the people was finally returning to the land of Israel to rebuild their nation, to build a new future, for themselves as a people. I'm sure expectations would have been high for these people. This future seemed so bright, didn't it? Finally, they have the opportunity for a fresh new start. But no, not really. At least not initially and on face value. Having returned to the land, they faced a poor crop. Already a very poor people. This meant that they were going to go hungry and without for some period of time. Whatever these people put their hands to just didn't seem to flourish and prosper as they hoped it would. What's the cause of all this? Was it some arbitrary act of nature that the rain didn't fall? That the crops didn't succeed? No, God's word doesn't leave us guessing here. Verse 11 says it all. And I, says the Lord, I have called for a drought on the land, on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Why would God do such a thing? Is God in the wrong here? How could God do such a thing? Questions that no doubt fly off the tongues of many people in our present uh, cultural context. If they were to read these, verses and maybe that's your questions here today as well according to Haggai though God had every right to act this way again the reason is not arbitrary but laid out clear verse 4 it says is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in panelled houses while this house lies in ruins speaking of the temple that was yet to be rebuilt God here asks a pointed question through his prophet of his people, one that challenges their priorities in life and what they were putting first. This people, upon returning to the land of Israel, were meant to focus their first attention on rebuilding the temple of the Lord so that old covenant worship could resume as it was meant to and that God would be glorified and that the people might experience his blessing. Instead, they were beginning to experience the same covenant curses that their ancestors experienced that led them to being exiled in the first place. Covenant curses that Moses lays out quite clearly in numerous passages in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. At the heart of it, it's highlighting in our passage here, an issue that really transcends beyond the people of Israel. And it is a constant risk of God's people in any age. And perhaps is especially relevant to Christianity in the rest of world, that of displaced priorities. Where God well and truly falls down the priority list, or in the case of the non-believer, doesn't even make the list in the first place. It's a heart that says of itself, I've just got to take care of my own life first. Then I can start to think about the things of God. Uh, this issue has both corporate, church-wide implications to consider, as well as individual, uh, our individual life. Here in the West, we live such comfortable lives, relatively speaking, when it comes to our material well-being. Now, there is not anything inherently wrong with possessions, but our physical livelihoods per se. God made us body and soul. But when you look at the state of the church, one does wonder whether the church is spiritually wealthy and rich, or instead rather spiritually poor. What I mean by the state of the church is regarding our overall spiritual health and well-being, our growth, our churches flourishing. If you take just our own denomination alone, the CRCA, there are certainly many eyebrows that one could raise. Many of our churches have dwindled in size, are in decline. Many churches struggle to fill their pulpit and struggle to raise up the next generation of Christians as well as equipping the saints, all saints, for the work of ministry. On an individual level, this calls each of us to assess also our own individual spiritual vitality? How much of a centerpiece is God truly in your own life? How much is church, discipleship, as seeing the lost save for Christ feature on your radar? Or is most of your time given to building your own little kingdoms on earth, your own superannuation fund, the most comfortable life that you can come up with in the here and now? is your entire existence consists of earthly matters and never ever venturing into spiritual affairs and the state and vitality of your own soul and your spiritual life before God. Such an approach to life is all too easy, actually, for any of us to slip into. It is the default setting of our culture and it will be the default setting of our lives too unless we actively resist it. On the surface, it doesn't seem so bad, nor soul-destroying at first. Such a life may seem to start out well, but can quickly become like a parasite that gnaws away at you and sucks your soul of true life. The church and people in general today, strictly speaking, are not bound to the old covenant curses in the same way that the nation of Israel were. But these Old Covenant curses certainly do set up a general pattern of how God tends to deal with sin and sinful people, showing that sin carries with it very real consequences. Such a life then of not prioritizing God and putting him first in all things may or may not result in physical poverty like those in our text. It could, but it may not but it will result in a hungry and empty soul. How many Christians lack true joy in their Christian walk today? How many in our culture yearn deep down for their souls to be truly satisfied and filled up? If that is you today, a central cause for this could very well be misplaced priorities in your life. With God far too often being left out on the extremities, on the outskirts of your life. So that's a bit of the background to this uh, uh, forward command here from the prophet Haggai to God's remnant people and to us here today. The people here had lost sight of God and God was warning them of what that way brings in the end. Not life, but death. Having considered the background then of what led to God issuing this command to his people, next I want to consider the blessing of the command itself. And what we learn is that even if it doesn't feel like a blessing, the command in many ways, being a rebuke, actually brings God's blessing. Twice God commands in our text, consider your ways. And also that overt command in verse 8, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house. When you think about it, these commands would not have been uh, obvious, uh, would have been not necessarily easy to swallow and to take home for these people in our text. I mean, they were already poor and not well off. What else were they meant to do? I mean... Should they not have spent their time and energy building their nice homes and sowing their crops and planting food? Again, God is not saying here that these things are unimportant. Again, God has made us body and soul. We should look after the body God has given us. We should take care of our families for physical provisions for loved ones. We should take appropriate time out, rest, holiday, even enjoy the fruit of our hard-earned labors. But that's not the issue here. It's what gets first place. The temple laid in ruin. A very vivid and tangible symbol of the people's ruined relationship with God. At the heart of it, they didn't really value God for who he was in himself. They didn't really see value, at least not enough value, in worshipping God and enjoying giving glory to him, in truly dedicating their whole lives to him. Such a command is echoed in the New Testament. A command as a church we might be familiar with now, having seen Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say there in chapter 6? Seek, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. Just like Israel, likewise, you and I can think of a plethora of reasons why we shouldn't follow this command wholesomely and fully. Oh, you don't understand my situation, Mr. Preacher. You don't understand my schedule. You don't understand the pressure that I'm under at the moment. I've got bills to pay. I've got kids to ferry off to every event and engagement. I have a job to work and overtime to fulfill. I've got a massive massive mortgage to pay off. I've got that home I inherited. I need to busy myself doing it up. God's not ignoring those things. They are valid everyday concerns that we deal with. Ones that you and I need to commit to God in prayer and approach wisely and faithfully and in a godly manner. But... There's always a but, isn't there? But God is saying still, put me first in all things. Don't neglect me. I am really worth it. When the chips are down and life is tough, where do you turn? What do those moments teach you about your own spiritual vitality and walk with the Lord? Is God still in the picture or far removed? In such times, if our hearts are indeed not right with the Lord, our rebuke can seem like the very last thing that you and I want to hear. But a hard word may be the very thing you and I need to get our life back on track and our walk with the Lord lively again. Hebrews twelve eleven says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In following God and choosing to put him first in all things, God is not promising a carefree life. He's not promising a prosperity kind of gospel where you automatically get rich for following God. But it certainly does mean in this life gaining the very best thing. God himself and a heart that is truly satisfied with God, tasting his presence and seeing that it is good. Such a life produces contentment for the soul that has the capacity to shoulder external changes and circumstances, whether good or bad, because internally you're satisfied with the goodness of God. Before I leave this point, perhaps it's worth considering a little bit more what that actually looks like, uh, particularly in New Testament terms for the church. This, I'd say, is an important question to ask. Because in our text, the people are called to build a physical temple. Does that mean you and I also need to kind of build something? If so, what is it? Well, there's many ways that this could be answered. I mean, (laughs) an obvious thing that some people might think when they read this text is let's build a physical church right we need a church building let's build another one let's build more now that's probably not part of the answer it's a helpful thing to think about and the new testament uh, doesn't help me get lost on what page you're on is it <clears throat> Now, a faithful answer to this question might indeed include physical buildings. That's all part of being a church and a people who live physically in God's world that He's created. But I don't at all think that that's the full biblical answer here. For one needs to answer such a question about what this command looks like in practice by considering the purpose behind it, the why and the what. The Bible and New Testament, for the church especially, uh, gives a variety of answers to this that I think are faithful. Make disciples for the glory of God can be an obvious one. Love God and love others is another. But today I'm inclined to say it this way. Church, what this means for us today is focusing on people and relationships. It is to become other person oriented. First, this means focusing on your relationship with God. Is he centre to your life? Does the way you live your life actually show to others that this is true of you? Do you relish the opportunity to come to church? Or is church a formality? What does your own spiritual life look like throughout the week? Are you involved in the lives of other Christians? Do you read your Bible? Do you enjoy prayer? Or is it a burden? How dedicated to God would your closest Christian friend really say that you are if they told you the truth? But not only does this mean our relationship with God, it means being relationally minded towards other people, having a particular drive and desire to see them experience more of God and be built up in their Christian walk. So yes, we need to build more physical churches, places to meet, sure. But let us be most chiefly concerned with building up the people inside those churches and seeing the lost who remain in spiritual darkness outside these four walls of this building come to know Christ. Let that be our concern. Is that your concern? Consider your ways, says the Lord. Come on, get your act together, says God, spoken out of love. So we've considered the background to the command here, why it was issued in the first place. We've considered a little of the command itself and how God truly calls us to live a life for him. And that this command is a loving rebuke from God that really does mean good for God's people who are caught out not prioritizing God in life as they ought, which is really something all of us could grow in in some way. Lastly, let us consider the response to this command in our text. And what we find in our passage are hearers who are graciously stirred by God into action. Notice with me a few things from the response here of God's people. Firstly, notice that the response is a community-wide obedience. It's not just Zerubbabel or Joshua, the high priest, who respond, but it's the people, all the remnant of the people. All of the people come together together, for this building project. For it was going to take every single one of them to be able to pull it off. My mind went to Apostle's, uh, Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, where there he speaks about the, how the people of God are the body of Christ. For just as, he says in verse 12, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though, uh, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Uh, In verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, picturing each of us as different body parts in the body of Christ, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again of the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Later in verse 24, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the member... Members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. People of God, do you know the important part you play in the life of the local church and fellow Christians in your life? In living out the gospel... God's church is not going to be built by itself. It is purposefully designed to be a team effort as God works through us. And so I just simply ask, are you obediently playing your part as an important part of God's church, part of a member of Christ's church? Uh, Next notice with me, the response is fueled by word and spirit, by the gospel. Verse 4 speaks of the Lord having stirred up all the people. Here we get the full picture of God's work in our lives. Yes, the Lord commands obedience. Yes, the Lord demands that we fully dedicate our lives to him. But he also gives us the ability to do so in the gospel. For it is in the gospel that we learn two key things. First, that we are sinners who are unable to truly live out this calling, if we're honest with ourselves. The tragedy of sin is that it so affects the human soul that it is our nature now to resist God's will for our lives and our sinful nature. You and I really do need a change of heart if we're going to seek him first and live a life consistent in that calling. Second then, the gospel teaches us that we learn of God's great provision for his people through his son, Jesus Christ. For it is through the resurrected Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit being sent out from heaven that we are empowered to live obedient lives. God really does resource us with what we need. On the cross, Jesus dealt with and paid for our sins something that we get to reflect on soon in the Lord's Supper together. In his resurrection, he shares with us his resurrected life by his Spirit. The Christian, when confronted with where we fall short, can so easily be overwhelmed, so easily discouraged, so easily remain stubborn and hard. But thanks be to God that God's loved us so much that he didn't leave us there. No, he empowers us. He empowers his people and changes us for the indwelt Holy Spirit at work in us. And the Spirit who brings these great truths of Scripture alive to you and me. Do you know the Spirit's empowerment this day? Church, will you join with me as we pray earnestly for it? Lastly, notice that the response is, includes a message of encouragement. I am with you, declares the Lord, verse 13. And likewise, he is with us today. Yes, we are rebellious by nature. Yes, we struggle to live out this calling all the time. But God so loved us that he rescued us from our sinfulness. What love, what grace that we need. Father, churchgoer, do you know this grace for yourself? Does your heart know the risen Jesus as its Lord and Savior? Confess your sin today, if not, and believe that Jesus can wash you clean. Is that your story today? Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning in how you gift us with this great command to get on with the Christian life, to prioritise you first in all things, and to be people-orientated, to be focusing on our relationship with you, and also to seek the well-being of others around us, that they might be spiritually alive for you, and be encouraged and built up in their faith. And indeed, that even the lost might be saved. Father, as we consider this great calling, as your word has revealed to us, we can't do that ourselves. We cannot muster up enough moral strength or willpower to live this out ourselves. But Father, we need your spirit to be work amongst us. Father, we pray that you would send forth your spirit upon your people that you would empower us this day to live out this calling faithfully in this time and place in which you have purposefully placed us. Father, let us not waste away our lives, but Father, let us make good use of the time and joyfully do so as we respond to your grace shown to us in Jesus. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.